le stack place, le before et so chouette Les avis pédantes et super une fête Je pense que c'est effectively cool Je pense que c'est effectively wild Effectivement sauvage Effectivement sauvage Hello and welcome to episode 2098 of Effectively Wild, a Fangraphs baseball podcast brought to you by our Patreon supporters. I'm Meg Rowley of Fangraphs and I am joined by Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer. Ben, how are you? Well, part of me is excited because we've got Mm. some fun stuff to talk about. We've got some interesting news. The San Francisco Giants have finally landed a flashy free agent. They have signed Jung-Hoo Lee after being spurned by Shohei Otani, whom they claim to have offered roughly the same deal that the Dodgers Mm -hmm. did. But they've got Lee and we're going to talk about Lee. We're going to bring on Eric Langenhagen, who's going to give us the full scouting report on Lee. But not only Lee, all of the fantastic Asian players who are really enlivening this offseason's free yeah. agent market. Because as we talked about, not that great a market if you subtract the Asian players and not just Shohei Otani, but also the players who are coming over from Asian leagues. Now, Yamamoto, we will talk about at length. We'll talk about Imanaga. We'll talk about some of the relievers. And we'll talk about the challenges inherent in evaluating and scouting players who are moving from one league to another and some of the stylistic differences. It's going to be great. However, I am conflicted. I feel like Mm. we can't move forward until we get something straight. And that is, how are we going to handle Shohei Otani's contract in the free agent over understraft? That is the defining question facing Effectively Wild now. So much has been written. So much has been said about Otani's deal. And is it favorable to him? Is it favorable to the Dodgers? Should people be upset about this? We've talked about it. I've written about it. No one else seems to have really considered what this means for us, the implications for the Effectively Wild over unders draft. And we've got to tangle with that. We've got to really reckon with this. Yeah. Because... How we count that deal will swing this draft, right? Yeah. Or it, it could. It certainly could one way. <laughs> right. So so I think we each have to maybe make a case here. I solicited responses <laughs> from listeners on the last episode. I asked for amicus briefs as yeah. we go to trial over this thing. And people have written in with great perspectives. And this basically boils down to, for those who haven't followed it, we've done an annual Effectively Wild over-unders draft for many years now, where we take the MLB trade rumors predictions for what free agents will make. And then we select some we think will get more or less. And we take the over or the under. And if we pick in the right direction, then we get credit for the amount of money that they got that was uh, different from what MLB trade rumors predicted. So you took the under on Shohei Otani, who had been projected to make $528 million by MLB right. Trade Rumors. And I should say, you also took the over on Lee, and you did quite did. well for yourself there, I as did. he did. Because yep. <laughs> yep. uh, they, they predicted $50 bucks for him over five years, and he ended up getting quite a good deal more than that. He got a, he a six-year deal, 113 So that would be a windfall, not only for him, but for you in the draft, yeah. except that except. your draft is basically over, yep. <laughs> as we discussed last week, if you don't get credit for the under on Otani. Right. If you blew that one, if we count the right. $700 million, then right. 
that's it for you. That's <laughs> then it. you pick the under, it was the over by hundreds of millions of dollars, and that sinks your draft. Whereas right. if we use the $460 million figure, if we right. use the net present value, if we use what it is uh, appraised as for competitive balance tax purposes, then in fact, you would have chosen wisely and yes. picked correctly, and you would yes. get credit for that. Yes. So you are lodging a, a formal petition here to do well, that, I believe. <laughs> I mean, I guess I am because here we are. I don't know that I expect to prevail um, because, look, we have never we have never cared about this before. Right. And I can't recall, Ben, I can't remember. I can't remember what we talked about on the podcast the last time, um, particularly since we had to record part of the segment twice. So who knows what people heard? I don't know. Yeah. I don't know what anyone heard. I don't know what anyone heard about it. But, you know, we have never accounted for um, deferrals previously, right? right? And and the concept of a deferral isn't unprecedented. It's just the magnitude and particular structure of this deferral that is without precedent. So on, on some level, I expect to lose because why would, why would we care now, you know, just because I am so profoundly inconvenienced, you know, so there's that part of it. But I do think there is something about this being unprecedented from a deferral's perspective that at least invites us to ask the question of how we ought to consider these things, both in my specific case and and generally, because our understanding of this deal in terms of its it, its real value, right, is that it is depending on whether you want the, the CBT number um, or like the actual sort of net present value number, which are slightly different, right? Yeah. But, you know, it's somewhere between 460 and $470 million in terms of um, how we understand the real value of this deal. And that seems meaningful to me, both because I'd like to win and also because, you know, Otani architected this um, particular strategy so that he could minimize the real present impact of his signing. And he did that for a couple of reasons, many of which we talked about last time. We probably didn't talk about the tax implications for him enough um, because that seems like it is a an important factor for him, right? And probably maybe as important as the um, the ability to have the Dodgers have payroll flexibility. But like, this isn't really a $700 million deal in terms of its like value right now. And mm -hmm. I think that if we as a podcast are going to dedicate a segment to saying, well, the top line number isn't really what this deal is. This is what mm -hmm. this deal really is. And then we're going to talk about it for 30 minutes twice mm -hmm. that perhaps I should emerge victorious um, and get to count, you know, and I'll let you, um, I'll let you pick the higher of the two numbers so that my um, victory is a little uh, on this particular contract. There's a lot of there's a lot of off season left. Right. And yeah. so me emerging um, triumphant on this particular question doesn't assure me a win in the draft. It does um, mean that I haven't lost already. So that's <laughs> kind of nice. But. We felt deflated as a as a podcast when we heard the terms of this deal, even understanding when it was initially announced that it would include significant deferrals. We didn't we didn't dare imagine, Ben, that it would be this meaningful, mm -hmm. that it would knock him down to two million dollars a year in real salary and uh, a competitive balance tax hit of um, a mere 46 million rather than, 
you know, rather than the 70 that we had originally contemplated as possible. So, that's kind of where I'm at. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, I, I understand. It's a valid point of view. I'm somewhat sympathetic, if only because uh, if we use the 700, are we perpetuating the sort of uh, fiction that this right. was a $700 million deal in the sense that a lot of reported free agent terms are whatever the value they are, right? This is different for all the reasons that we've outlined. The counterpoint would be, well, A, we've never done it that way, right? And right. yes, this is different in degree, but not quite in kind. And we didn't establish that anything would be different about this when we conducted our draft, right? And right. no one really could have anticipated exactly the way that this would work out. But we knew that there might be something sort of wonky about the way that this contract works. I, I mentioned at the time that it might actually have been a great pick for you because maybe he would sign a short-term deal right. and maybe then you would get credit for that. So there was always a possibility of some unusual structure, right? And uh, that could have been factored into your decision-making for the pick. There's also just the the complication of if we do this, are we opening Pandora's box here? Like, it's very simple to just use that top line number of guaranteed dollars. Once you start bringing in opt-outs and deferrals and whatever else, then it becomes difficult to calculate, or at least we have to agree on a way to calculate it. Because I've seen people come up with all sorts of values for the actual present day value of this contract. According to the AP, for instance, there are three different evaluations of what the contract is worth in present-day dollars. For competitive balance tax purposes, you use a 4.43% discount rate. That's the October 2023 federal midterm rate, and that gives you a value of $460,767,685. But the Players Association evaluates it at $437,830,563. And then, for purposes of MLB regular payrolls, a 10% discount rate is used, and the value is 282 million dollars 107,876 that's the JP Morgan Chase prime rate plus 1% rounded to the nearest full percentage point i'm learning a lot more about interest rates than i ever cared to know but i've seen so many figures using different interest rates and what could otani get if he invested that money so just for consistency and simplicity's sake i think it makes sense to stick with that top line number and it's not a complete fiction. He will receive $700 million. Those dollars just won't be worth as much when he gets them as they are now. So I'll, I'll read a few responses from listeners. We had people write in to support both sides. Mm-hmm. Vicky said, definitely think that Meg's free agent draft should be counted as present day value. Aaron said, I'm not a corporate attorney, but in my humble opinion, Shohei's contract should be considered like it is considered for luxury tax purposes. 10 and 460, huge momentum swing for Meg. Coolby said in our Patreon Discord group, I want to weigh in on the side that's in favor of ruling the Otani contract as 460 for the sake of the free agent draft. That's not the letter of the law, according to past precedent. But in this case, it's clearly closer to the spirit of the underlying mm. exercise. I agree. Yeah. Than taking the 700 at face value. And if you can't make ad hoc decisions to accord with the generally accepted spirit of a zero stakes wager, where oh where can we ever find justice in this world? All right. That's uh, that's a sensible point there. Now, we did get people writing in on the other side, some of whom did extensive research, really, which is uh, quite impressive. They really took the spirit of the amicus brief to heart. For instance, 
Here's some useful information from JJ. By my count, through 2022, there were 95 contracts selected in the over-under draft, of which 10 were reported to have deferrals, or approximately 11%. On average, there are two contracts each draft which contain deferrals. 2022 is the only draft for which no selected contract contained deferred money. Through the 2022 draft, the contract with the largest raw dollar amount of deferred money is Freddie Freeman's contract, selected in the 2021 draft with 57 million deferred. The contract with the largest percentage is Brad Hand's contract, selected in the 2020 draft, of which 6.5 million of 10.5 million was deferred, or approximately 62%. How about that, Meg? 62% of Brad Hand's contract was deferred. Three contracts selected have had at least one third of the total money deferred. Freeman's, Didi Gregorius's contract selected in the 2020 draft, and Steven Strasberg's contract selected in the 2019 draft. And another three contracts have been between 18 and 24% of their total money to serve. Incredible research here. The lowest total value of a contract with deferrals is Andrew Kashner's $16 million, selected in the inaugural draft. The largest total value of a contract with deferrals prior to Otani's is Strasburg's. Shoei Otani's contract deferrals are thus unprecedented in scale only. Contract totals in past drafts at both the high end and the low end of the market include all deferred monies for the purposes of scoring. The object of the draft is to pick correct directionality with the reward comprising the gulf between the line and the pick. To paraphrase Meg on 2097, Otani could have signed at 10460, the CBT value of the contract, but desired a contract with a much higher price tag. The accounting trick of deferrals may lower the present day value of Otani's contract, but it does not lower the raw dollars deposited into his coffers. Deferrals serve multiple purposes for some players. It offers the security of an annuity. For some teams, it offers the ability to pay for the contract with cheaper money. For Otani and the Dodgers, the purpose is at least partly to increase the payroll spending power of the team during the term of Otani's contract. Given the reporting that Otani's philosophy is this with his suitors, logic suggests that if he valued his talents at 460 over 10 years, he would still offer to defer a supermajority of his salary. But those are not the final terms. Shohei Otani is a $700 million man and his contract for the over-under draft should be valued at $700 million. All right. Thanks for the data. Bringing the data to the discussion. Rita says, as a finance-adjacent professional, I do property tax research. Present value is the most well-actually of any number in econ, a field chock-full of well-actually numbers. Imagine how funny that first $68 million is going to be. Real dollar value only in my house. Sorry, Meg. Now, Tyler says, don't do it unless you change the metric for every other contract as well. All mm. contracts signed, except for one-year contracts, have a lower present value than top-line sure. value. The net present value of Jamer Candelario's deal with the Reds is not $45 million. In other words, what Shohei did creates a difference in degree, but not in kind. That's what I said earlier. Rob Means just wrote about this at BP. I'm guessing you do not want to run NPP calculations on all of the contracts that you drafted, plus all of the estimates, so I think you should stick with the headline value. I suppose the alternative would be to use the luxury tax AAV as the metric, but that's also complicated and gives too much legitimacy to the anti-competitive anti-labor luxury tax okay and a final perspective here from michael who sort of says something similar but also splits the difference the obvious answer to this question is that you've been doing it wrong all along (laughs) the correct way to evaluate contracts is not total dollars but net present value you've already discussed this with respect to otani the discourse seems to be suggesting that his contract is worth 460 or 470 which is evenly paid out 10-year contract that produces the same npv as his annual contract but the critical number here is 395 million which is the actual npv 
of his contract at a 4% discount rate. This is below the MPV of 425 that the MLB trade rumors projection of 528 would have produced. So for Otani, I think the under should win, but there's no reason to just do this for Otani. The only intellectually honest thing is to do this for all contracts. So it's a real can of worms here. We, we might have to invalidate all previous results and retrospectively recalculate all of the over under mm. drafts. And you know, I didn't win any of those. So I think that's, only, <laughs> that like, that's the right, that's the right thing to do. You know, yeah. I think that that's just the most rigorous really mm-hmm. like that brings the spirit of, um, of pedantry to the mm-hmm. exercise in a way that it was maybe lacking before. And we are nothing if not pedantic. So <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I find that pretty persuasive. Now, lastly, I did solicit a ruling from John Chenier, mm. who is effectively Wild's scorekeeper and statistician. He enters all the results of our drafts and competitions into the drafts and competitions spreadsheet. And he deliberated over this for some time. Yeah. He, he slept on it. <laughs> he didn't want to issue a, a snap judgment or a ruling sure. here. But he did conclude, while I can acknowledge the extremity of this case, in the end, Otani is still getting $700 million from the Dodgers, just not $700 million in today's dollars. So I say it does count against Meg. Yeah. Now, I, I'm not saying his, his word is binding or that his ruling is final or anything. I'm just, you know, that's another little data point there. So... I don't know how to decide this. I guess one point in favor of saying that the undercounts is that, well, the competition isn't over, right? Because if it's over, then it's over. (laughs) But that, uh, I guess, is not the most intellectually honest way to decide how to handle this. What would make it most interesting for the rest of the offseason? Right. Yeah, probably not. I I feel like if I wanted to be a stickler, I could just insist on, hey, you know, we drafted total guaranteed dollars and that's what we've all always done and uh, we can't retroactively make an exception here. But I'm willing to open it up to the audience if you want to if you want to do a poll, if you want to do wisdom of crowds and, and crowdsource this thing, I will I will abide by the effectively wild audiences input here. I will, too. I, I feel like um, you should decide if you want them to to decide because I'm obviously a hopelessly conflicted party in this. <laughs> I mean, um, we both are. Yeah, we, we should yeah, both somehow yeah. recuse ourselves here and, and let a neutral party, which I guess is is, is the John crowd. potentially yeah. or the crowd. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'd hate to. I'd hate to make John solely responsible know, for what right. happens. Yeah, we, we feels... both like him. He's he's friendly with both of us. He might not yeah. want that that weight hanging on him. Yeah. Right? Yeah, it's, you know, it's like you don't want to be the the person whose rookie of the year vote determines mm-hmm. like service time stuff. That sounds yeah. stressful and terrible. So, um so maybe the crowd is the right way to do it. I want to stress again that I don't expect to prevail in in this <laughs> regardless of the ultimate uh, authority deciding what's going on. This doesn't feel like a a thing that I will emerge triumphant in, but like maybe we put it to the crowd um Mm -hmm. you know the question is like (laughs) do we put it to the discord do we put it to the facebook group a lot of people in the facebook group are going to be confused and be like what is this even about because they don't (laughs) listen to the podcast which remains bizarre (laughs) 
a I main will, stretch. Uh, I can create a, a poll. I can do a Google form sort of thing and I'll link to it on the podcast description on our show page here. If you're looking at your podcast app, you can find a link there right now and you can go and cast your vote. And I would just say, vote, vote your conscience. Just, yeah. uh, you know, not necessarily what you think would be most entertaining for podcast yeah. purposes, but but uh, who do you think deserves it here, which is, is closer to the way that we have conducted this draft historically. And uh, I'll, I'll leave it up to people, I guess. Yeah. All right. Well, I agree to abide by the results and we will report them next time. You know, the audience is a, a big part of Effectively Wild. So I, yeah. I like letting them weigh in here. I will submit to whatever the election results prove themselves to be. We will have a peaceful transfer of <laughs> yes. over under draft power. We will both make that pledge to abide by this democratic <laughs> process in advance. Okay, great. Uh, laugh because we're sad. <laughs> All right. Last thing before we bring on Eric here. In some slightly less notable news, the Royals signed a bunch of pitchers. Yeah, they sure did. It's kind of interesting, right? The Royals have signed Seth Lugo. They've signed Chris Stratton. They've signed Will Smith. So I guess uh, that's, you know, maybe not super exciting unless you're a Royals fan. And even then, I don't know if it is, but I guess you could certainly say that the Royals needed pitching help. That much was clear because they were, I think, 28th in Fangraphs war in reliever war last season and 26th in starter war, which comes out to 27th overall. I guess the bad news is that even after making these additions, they are still projected to be 27th in reliever war and 23rd in starter war. But I guess you got to start, so to speak, somewhere. <laughs> so what do you make of these moves? Seth Lugo being the, the bigger, the higher dollar one. That was three years, 45 million, I think, which was something like the third biggest contract in Royals franchise history, I think think with unadjusted dollars? I don't have a strong view of this really one way or the other, you know? Um, mm -hmm. I don't think it moves the needle for them significantly. They're not going to like suddenly rocket up my leaderboards in the central, even in a weak division. But to your yeah. point, like they got to they gotta start somewhere. I think that if I'm Kansas City, I am skeptical of my ability ability to develop pitching internally and so free agency is attractive to me if I have confidence in the guys I'm signing as a means of bringing in sort of reliable production so that's kind of what I think about it I don't really have mm -hmm. much more I mean like it's Seth Lugo he's he's good you know like um he did I think a little bit he was pretty right in line with Ben Clemens's estimates in terms of what he would do and Ben was a little high on him relative to consensus I think I think Ben I haven't spent a lot of time thinking about Seth Lugo since we published that post I'm not gonna <laughs> lie to you mm -hmm. um not because he's bad but because you know there are just other guys who are like really good yeah I like Lugo but it's, it's not really a step change for the Royals no. it's it's not like it it pushes them from one category to another. By the way, I think it's actually their fourth biggest free agent contract, oh. not their third, after Alex Gordon, Ian Kennedy, and Gilmesh, which worked yeah. out wonderfully. So Seth Lugo. Yeah, I like Lugo, but yeah, you know, it's just, uh, it, it really isn't going to, their fortunes, I don't think are going to swing one way or another on their free agent pitching additions. Probably you have to supplement, but the hope for them was that they had this great wave of young pitching coming up and coming along. And then that wave 
I don't know that we can even say it crested. It it never really did, and it hasn't. Some guys have turned out to be okay. Others have gone backward, and that seemed to be a big impetus for their changes last winter, coaching and, and front office, et cetera, and then the results just weren't so great. So, yeah, Cole Reagan's is sort of exciting based on what he did down the stretch for them and Brady Singer, but after that, it's just like... I mean, you know, I, I tip my cap to Jordan Lyles and his below average inning eating. <laughs> it is yeah. it's something. There's some value to that. But it's just not a great staff unless some guys that they already have take steps forward. They have to prove right. that they can do that, that they can develop and, and you know, develop and promote internally and right. have a, a high caliber core there outside of Bobby Witt. They have to figure out what they're doing with all those guys. They've had a lot right. of young players getting lots of playing time, but it's just not entirely clear. Like, are are they good? Are they good enough to be the core of a contending Royals team and which ones and at which positions? They just, they got to sort that stuff out. There's a lot to be done here and it's across the board. And I think that they are in a position that this is like a, I'm going to, I'm going to make a, a tortured comp. Okay. okay. Are you ready for torture comp? Mm-hmm. In some ways they remind me of the Marlins of a few years ago uh-huh. where we, and in a very particular way, torture comp, very particular <laughs> way where when the Marlins sale went through and and they were starting to hire guys and bring like a bunch of, at the time, Yankees um, player dev and sort of front office folks into the organization. Like the way that we thought about them or that I thought about them in terms of their potential timeline for competition was like, th- there's like a lot of back end infrastructure approach hiring work that needs to go on before we even think about like what do the players look like right Mm -hmm. and I think that Kansas City is in sort of a similar situation even though I don't really tie it to the sale they were sold right Um, a couple years ago where it's like they are they're behind in a lot of important ways uh, as an organization and so I think that you can bring in guys like you can have someone like Witt who did manage to take a really meaningful step forward this year and was wasn't is like a foundational piece for them and they have other players who range from like good to interesting right mm-hmm. um but the way that they need to be oriented as an organization needs to change i think pretty fundamentally they need to, there needs to be a revamping of like the the approach to putting a baseball team on the field before any of that really matters now if they have like a surprise good season, that would be really cool. In part because we could say, look at these players. Like it's got to be the players because mm-hmm. they've changed, you know, from a approach perspective um, as a front office. So I think that's kind of where I sit with KC, where it's like, mm-hmm. I feel for Kansas City fans, like part of me is like, just trade all your good guys. But it's like, what would they get for them? You know, and like, it wouldn't be good. So, <laughs> yeah. The individual moves and the terms seem fine here. Fine. It, it's they seem just, fine. Yeah. There, there's uh, more work to be done. But yeah, there's an interesting like Texas, Kansas City pitching pipeline going on here with Will yeah. Smith and Stratton coming from the Rangers and a uh, Rollis Chapman going to the Rangers, right? And sure. that I wonder is 
the motivation maybe for the Smith signing. Uh, he's not like Rollis Chapman, but maybe, you know, they flipped Chapman. They got Reagans. That worked out great for them, right? right? Maybe right. they're hoping to do something similar if, if Smith sort of reestablishes himself and the Royals aren't in it, then sure. perhaps they could trade. Not that he's, you know, projecting to be a great trade chip or something, but that does remind me of a question that we got from listener Wandering Winder, who said, if the Royals win the World Series this year, will you believe that Will Smith is one of the people from an effectively wild hypothetical oh, who yeah. has magic powers? Will you yeah. at least start to wonder? Because I will wonder. Smith yeah. famously has won the World Series three years in a row with three, three different teams, Atlanta, yeah. Houston, and Texas. If he extends the streak... Now, of course, he could extend the streak like Chapman did by going sure. from the Royals to some other team at midseason. But but if the Royals win yes. a World Series with Will Smith in 2024, will you think he is a witch or a wizard or whatever? Yeah, I think I, I will start to wonder a little bit. I don't believe in any of that as being like actually real. But like <laughs> what what would it would be so weird. I mean, it would. among the teams that are the least likely to win the World Series next year, Kansas City has to be. I mean, they're not maybe at the the tippy top of that list because mm-hmm. um, I think that like the A's have longer odds. I think that the the Rockies have longer odds. You know, the Royals get this like advantage in the improbable World Series sweepstakes because they play in the Central. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, like, in terms of having a pass to the postseason, even though yeah. I still consider it to be to be very clear, quite remote. It exists, you know, like it's narrow. It's like one of those terrifying little caves you have to like squeeze through, you know, (laughs) that no one should do that. Cause like even thinking about it makes me anxious, but you know, it's like one of those where it's like, Oh, you're going to get scraped. Your back's going to be all weird. Like you're probably going to have like dirt on you, but like it should happen. It's not impossible. It's highly improbable, but not impossible. Whereas like, you know, the, the AL West is like a good division. The the NL West is like a good division. I think that like, even the, like even the nationals are much further along in their process than I think um, like the, the Royals and A's and and Rockies are, but like the Royals is like, because the nationals famously play in the NL East, not an easy division. So, uh, you know, it's it's there, but I would I would think that you know for it to happen, both the the getting to the postseason via an AL Central crown, and then navigating um, a, a robust playoff field, I would have to assume that magic was involved. You know, that would yeah. require it almost. Right. So yeah, the Royals I think are, are better than they played last season. Sure, their season was really a, a setback because they were expecting to take a step forward. It was almost like the Tigers when everyone was like, oh, Tigers, they turn in the corner, you know, dark horses, and then things fell flat. I think the Royals were sort of similar this past season, and they were very unlucky. No one really noticed because they weren't bad because of their bad luck. They were just even worse. (laughs) But according to base runs at at Fangrass, the Padres were nine wins worse than they should have been, and everyone noticed because that made a big difference in the Padres' case. But the Royals were 10 wins worse. It's just that 
that's the difference between like 56 and 66, which still sucks, right? But yeah. but that might suggest that there's some regression coming their way, which might boost them, but not to winning a World Series levels. So yeah, if this were to happen, I would seriously have to question because Will Smith was with very good teams the past right. three years. It's not right. that surprising that Atlanta won or that Houston won or even that Texas won. Yeah. Somewhat surprising, but but not. But not <laughs> Royals winning surprising. Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah, so and, and he's the first player ever to do it with three different teams in three different years. I remember Eric Hinsky made three consecutive World Series with three different teams. And people were people were talking about Hinsky as kind of a Ghani Jones style right. talisman. Good luck charm. Right. So, yes, if the Royals win a World Series with Will Smith, we may have to throw him into water to see if he sinks. Just set aside the AL teams that they would have to to defeat in order to win the pennant, right? Just set that aside for a second. Like, mm -hmm. uh, winning the World Series would mean that the Braves didn't win or the Phillies didn't win or or the Dodgers didn't win or even the Diamondbacks didn't win. You know, that seems very unlikely. To, the Mets didn't win. I'm saying the Mets, so everyone relaxes. <laughs> I, everyone should do a wellness check on their Mets fan friends because yeah. that part of Twitter seems very upset. Yes, and I don't want to contribute to their further agitation because it's already a, a you know scary time for them over there because mm -hmm. they might not be the very best team in baseball. Um, so like it seems like it would have to involve um, wizardry. What's the difference between a wizard and a warlock, Ben? This feels like nerd <laughs> shit you would know. Excuse me. <laughs> <laughs> That's, What's uh, the difference? I, I, I don't know. Uh, Is there a I, difference? Are those I'm synonymous not, terms? We're going to get emails. They, they might later. be somewhat synonymous, right? Yeah. 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 Okay. All okay. right. Well, we will take a quick break and we'll be back with Eric to talk about Lee and Yamamoto and other excellent Asian players. All right, we are joined now by Eric Longenhagen, Fangraph's lead prospect analyst and all-time leading Effectively Wild guest here to extend his record. Hello, Eric. Hey, Ben, what's up? We have talked to you about players everywhere, all levels and qualities of competition. You handle it all because you write about the draft and you write about MLB players and you write about international players. And today we're focusing on that last group. So how does your scouting process for players in NPP or Korea or Taiwan, how does that work for you? What sources of data or video do you have at your disposal and what are some of the challenges? It is two or three pronged the approach. The proliferation of video, specifically for me using Synergy Sports, has you know changed the way I do a lot of this really since the pandemic. You know, through Synergy, I do have access to video from all of the Asian professional leagues. And that is they've actually done a better job just in the last 12 months of like converting kilometers per hour to miles per hour, like in the user interface and, and stuff like that. Uh, even just the last year or so that has become like a, a much, much better tool. So I can watch like 
every young Huli ball in play. I can, you know, watch uh, every Hassan Kim swing against fastballs like 95 miles per hour and above and kind of get a sense of what's going on there. As far as like data resources go, Delta Graphs, which is like the NPB fan graphs, mm-hmm. where if you Google Essence of Baseball, I pay for like a souped up subscription to that site. And it is just like having NPB fan graphs. And they have a lot of data, including like pitch velocities and stuff like that for minor league baseball over there. Uh, so that's also very useful. And then I do have a handful of sources. It's not like the same deep well of folks who I do uh, domestically with MLB teams, but like I know scouts for Korean teams. I know scouts for MPB teams. Uh, I know like former executives who traffic in this space for one reason or another, and they are like wonderful sources of information when it comes to anticipating who might be coming back over, especially when it's like relatively innocuous names, guys like Jake Wagyu spec, like Kyle Keller was this year, Adam Plutko, guys who uh, might like come over or, you know, kick back uh, who were once here. And yeah, Eric Fetty. Yeah. Eric Fetty is obviously like the big one uh, from this off season. And then there have been so many consequential guys between, you know, from Merrill Kelly to Robert Suarez and a host of others, Nick Martinez, many, many guys go over there, develop um, in a way that they couldn't overhear and then come back. So, uh, you know, sometimes like with Fetty, there was a Washington Post article about like the changes Fetty made from from months ago that turned out to be, you know, a useful resource for, for that too. So, it is once you start getting to, down to like the Taiwanese league, uh, or like you start going through the KBO draft, like the first round of the KBO and MPB draft, uh, which takes place like in the fall. You can do a lot of video work on those guys too because they were on like the U18 Japanese national team. You can like dig on that and just like the video highlight culture. Uh, in Korea and in Japan, especially if you search for a player's name in like Korean or Japanese characters on YouTube, the video that comes up and like the data that you can see just like on YouTube, it's it really dwarfs like what we're doing over here in the US with like minor league and amateur baseball. So you mentioned this just a second ago, and we'll probably talk about it with Lee, but to try to account for the difference in the quality of competition, you might focus on pitches that are of a particular velocity or against certain guys who have certain experience, which people will do with amateur prospects too. Like, how did they do against uh, different kinds of competition or other guys who got drafted? I assume that that is useful and valuable and predictive, but do you know how predictive it is? For instance, if someone beats up on soft stuff that they're probably not going to see in MLB, is that just meaningless or does that still have some signal, but just less so? How do you weigh that? Yeah, it's incredibly difficult. I don't think there's a great way to do it. The sample is very small, especially when we're talking about how hitters are going to translate. And in Lee's case, Korean hitters. Uh, it, you know, they just are so few and far between in terms of like coming over here, uh, after they've played KBO baseball for a while. You do have like your fair share of them over the course of the last like 15 or, or 20 years. But, you know, the fact that we've had like two or three guys come over the last five years is not really enough to, to know how they're going to translate. I think 
if you're going to compare it to anything, it's like hitters making a leap from the ACC to Major League Baseball. Like just the the sheer velocity that you're facing in like a large college conference is more comparable to what's going on in the KBO uh, than any like upper minor league level. Even double and triple A pitching is just going to have more guys who throw hard. In Lee's case, uh, at least on tape in a way that Synergy has tracked, across the last two seasons, which is really like a season and a half of plate appearances because he was hurt this past season, he's only seen like 150 93 plus mile per hour fastballs in a season and a half. And that's like two weeks of plate appearances in Major League Baseball. So uh, it is, you know, very difficult. Sometimes it is you're limiting your sample to like the World Baseball Classic at bats this guy took because there he's facing a couple of guys back to back to back who have real stuff. And you're scouting him across, you know, seven, 10 total games uh, in international competition or against, you know, guys in Korea who throw hard. Although, like, the best pitcher in Korea is just, other than Eric Fetty last year, was just on Young Hoo Lee's team. Uh, that's Woo Jin An, who we probably won't see over uh, on our shores for, like, a long, long while. That's, like, a whole other can of worms to talk about on the podcast. But, like, uh, but yeah, it is, like, super difficult. I ultimately, the same as guys coming up from AAA, although to a more extreme degree, you just don't know. Like, there's such a, a huge gap between the quality of Major League stuff and any other league on the planet that, like, you truly just don't know how guys are going to do, I think, until you see them face big league stuff for a couple of months. Well, I guess that should maybe transition us into talking about Lee and what he might do for the Giants. Uh, We can talk about some of the other guys who uh, have been posted and are likely to come to MLB this offseason. But Lee is the first sort of big signing apart from, you know, Fetty. I don't want to I don't want to disrespect Eric Fetty. Um, But Lee is the big signing. The Giants have finally managed to spend some big money to net a free agent. So what should Giants fans expect from Lee as they look forward to next season? Well, I think the thing that helps him have a high floor is what he's capable of doing defensively. Um, As I was working on writing up Lee with Ben Clemens for like our top 50 free agents, we watched a bunch of him playing defense together towards the end of the year, and it was fine. On my own, I went back and watched like, you know, a few dozen more balls in play, and it was better than fine. He's got a plus arm. I think he's going to be an above average to plus defensive center fielder. That's not a thing the Giants had on their roster. They've tried to shoehorn guys like Mike Yastrzemski into center field uh, for the last couple of years. Luis Matos came up last year. I think they felt his defense was substandard. He was playing the corners in deference to some of the other guys uh, a whole bunch, even after he came up. Uh, so that's that's number one. Offensively, I think there's going to probably be an adjustment period for the reasons that we just talked about. Big league stuff is so good. Uh, you saw Hassan Kim have a year and a half plus, really, before he started to, he made like meaningful improvements after that amount of time still. So I think, you know, you're looking at like the back half of this deal before the opt out where there might be a leap in his offensive production. And what the Giants do with his swing, obviously there's no Gabe Kapler anymore, so we'll see how some of like 
the player development at the big league level stuff shakes out for this team. They were like very apt to want to grab guys and change them at the big league level under the like the previous coaching staff. Uh, so we'll see how some of that stuff goes now that like that group is is no longer in place as far as the big league field staff is is concerned. Uh, is there going to be more power here? Like, there's not power right now. Uh, you know, Lee's only 25, maybe, you know, with a, a, a major league strength and conditioning program and who knows what, like his dietary changes might be coming over here. Like there might be more strength. There might be a swing change. This guy had a 60% ground ball rate, uh, last year. He's not going to hit for power as his swing is currently constituted, but he's going to make a lot of contact. He can really make a ton of contact again. Probably there will be an adjustment period, but he's very talented contact hitter. I think just between that over time and what he's doing defensively in center field, that the zips projections for him are about what I'd expect. Two, two and a half war contact and defense in center field. Is he a monster star player? No, not unless that power arrives during the back half of the contract. Uh, if it does arrive during year three, during year four of his deal, then he's going to opt out, right? Just because at that point, he'll be 29. Now we're talking about a power hitting center fielder, like a do everything guy, and he'll cash in in a a pretty big way in free agency again. Is this a monster leap in terms of what the Giants had production wise before? Ah, Not uh, in a, in a big, big way. It creates kind of a log jam. In addition to Lee, you have Conforto, Michael Conforto and Mitch Haniger, who are on expensive deals for the next year or two, depending on the guy. They have both been either hurt or, you know, not awesome uh, for the last couple of years. Conforto slugged under 400 the last two seasons he's played. You know, those are platoon, expensive platoon guys for the next year or two, depending again on like their deal. And then you have Austin Slater, who's ARB three, crushes lefties again, like Voltroning these guys together has been what the Giants have liked to do. But between Yastrzemski uh, and uh, Conforto from the left side, Austin Slater, and Luis Matos and Mitch Haniger from the right side. Now you add Lee in the middle of that group. Uh, plus they have like Blake Sable laying around now who can be optioned after he met the rule five requirements from having played a whole season last year. Like there's, this is a crowded group. Uh, I would think there's got to be another shoe that drops here. I think given what we know about the Giants and how they've wanted to spend money way more than the 113 mil that they just gave Lee across you know during the last couple of off seasons that there's room for them to do something still and now they have a surplus of outfielders some of which i i you know are attractive i think on the open market or on the trade market rather uh that they could do a c steal they could do a glass now deal they could do uh you know play you know in the free agent market and also because they have money to spend presumably and also they have outfield surplus from which they could trade so uh, i would expect there's still more action to come here i think that you know, I don't know how you guys feel about it, but I think this team is still clearly a level behind what San Diego should be if they can continue to just build a suitable pitching staff and where Arizona is right now and definitely where the Dodgers are right now. So uh, I think there's still a lot of work to be done here, but this is a nice, like fun, exciting. It adds an element to the team that they didn't have before in terms of speed, athleticism, like good up the middle defense. You know, this is, this is an org that was trying to get Casey Schmidt to play short and, uh, you know, like had old Brandon Crawford doing stuff like, yeah, they need athletic up the middle guys. And so at least, you know, that this is a step in the right direction. 
How would you compare Lee and Kim, which I ask not just because they're both Korean players, but (laughs) because the deals are so different here, right? Because uh, Kim got four years in 25 as, at the time, the best player in the KBO, and then Lee gets six years and 113 with an opt-out as now the best player in the KBO. How much of that is the difference between the players and how much of that is the difference in perception of the leagues or at least of the potential for top KBO players to come over and excel in MLB now that Kim has, especially lately? Because I'm, I'm curious just about the evolution of how MLB teams see players who come over. Obviously, like decades ago, you know, Ichiro comes over and people are like, I don't know if this is going to work here. Right. But, but I right. mean, even more recently, since we've seen just so many top Japanese players and Korean players excel, is there less skepticism now or does it depend on the type of player and the type of production? I think it's a mix of all that stuff. I don't know that there is a universal acceptance that if you are an elite performer in even MPB, which is like, I think the quality of play in MPB is better than AAA baseball over here. Uh, that it's like sandwiched between that level and Major League Baseball. I think it's so, so high. But I think we're sort of, you know, it's that, it's the 90s SNL premise where it's just like, I can't remember a bad Chris Farley sketch. I just remember the ones I liked, right? Like Yoshi yeah. Sutsugo exists mm-hmm. and Byung Ho Park exists and like Kaz Matsui and all kinds of guys who came over and it didn't really work out quite in the way you wanted it to. Like, there are still plenty of plenty of examples of of that happening. So it is going to be hit and miss. I think in this case, I do think that Ha Sung did help alleviate concerns in general, just because that gap is so much bigger between KBO and MLB uh, that the guy could come over and and perform. In terms of like the players we're talking about there, yeah, they are different. Like Ha Sung Kim had nasty pull power in KBO. Um, like he was an incredibly dangerous pull for power hitter in Korea. And, you know, he has had to make pretty substantial adjustments to the way he's approaching hitting uh, on our shores. And like that has worked. Lee is just so contact oriented. It is incredibly special. Like what he's able to do as far as moving the barrel around the zone, there are mechanical things happening there that make me a little bit worried that you know the the skills won't translate but i do think there are some teams there's some teams uh who punt in this realm because of what they see as risk uh and it's like immediately apparent when you whiff on a guy like this that it's not going well like with Sutsugo and stuff uh and so like i know people like high ranking executives who are not at all interested in having players on their roster from this space directly. They would much rather them come over and succeed like, you know, a Kenta Maeda uh, for a while on our shores before bringing them into the fold. Uh, So I think that it's way different team to team. I think you can see some of the teams who have taken advantage of it more than others over the last, you know, five to eight years. I think San Diego is at like the very, very top of that list. Pierce Johnson and the guys I mentioned before, like it's just so many guys. If you can scout them and feel confident they're going to come back over here or come over here for the first time and do well, then yeah, you can have difference making players like a Robert Suarez this offseason. Like that's, you know, the Cuban guys who played in Japan 
uh, and then defect from Cuban citizenship and and then come over here. Like that's Oscar Colas too, right? Like it's it's kind of a mixed bag for him. But I think that, yeah, you can really make headway if you get a Merrill Kelly right or if you get a Robert Suarez right. Uh, and so, yeah, we'll see what happens here with Lee. I'm curious, like if we were going to, the perhaps the the best way to think about this is to present the the range of outcomes. So like from your perspective, what is what is the range of potential outcomes for Lee here in terms of what we might see from him? Like what's the the bottom to the top end, do you think? The bottom is he ends up being like the way Johan Rojas looked in the playoffs where, holy cow, look at that guy go get the ball in center field. It maybe not qu- to quite Rojas's level of defense. You know, Leody Tavares has way more raw power than Lee does right now, but some of the way like he has performed would be comparable to what you think the, the bottom is for Lee. And then the top is, I don't know, like the Benintendi peak years, but with good center field defense is like not a terrible way of, of comping it. I suppose you really have to, to squint to see it. Like Miles straw is like the bottom of the, the range of potential outcomes. Uh, I think like that's a, an interesting way of looking at it. And like maybe Leodi is like more the middle to the top, like what Leodi did this season. Do I think that this guy's going to be like Michael Harris? Probably not. TJ Friedel's not a terrible one either. Again, like Friedel had 18 bombs this year. That's, you know, I would have taken the under as far as whatever his peak career season would have been uh, in terms of like power output. TJ Friedel slugged almost 470 this year. You know, like that's like the high end outcome that we'd be looking at here where there are some like years of three, four war probably. Yeah, it's kind of confusing if you look at scouting reports on Lee. As you said, you know, you kind of had differing thoughts looking at him at different times. There's a Sports Info Solution scouting report about him online, which I will link to, and they have a defensive run saved metric for Asian leagues. And they had him at negative 13 in center field in 2022 and then plus nine in his shortened 2023. So make of that what you will. They kind of concluded somewhere in the middle, maybe. Since you have brought it up a couple times, that phenomenon of pitchers, especially going to foreign leagues and unlocking something, learning a new pitch, whatever it is, I guess it's not exclusive to pitchers. Some hitters have remade themselves over there, too. But what is that? Is that those teams being better at player development than those players teams in the U.S. were? Or is it a mindset thing? Maybe when players lose their spot in the majors and go over to another league, they're more open-minded about what do I have to do to get back to where I was, that kind of thing? It can be all over the map. I do think that a guy's ability to hit free agency of some kind or for teams to be done with them such that they can explore opportunities abroad, it can take so long that if you're a guy stuck in an org that isn't very good at developing pitchers, then you can have a real late breakout. I mean, we see it happen over here too. We see guys get hurt and leave, you know, teams that are that aren't good at developing pitching, especially, and they end up on the Yankees or the Dodgers or they end up with Cleveland or whatever it is, and they take a substantial late career leap or just make a change at all. Like Sean Manaya, Sean Manaya is great and you know, was a royal, an A, and a padre until his like late 20s, early 30s. And none of those teams is especially good at optimizing their pitchers. And so once he got with San Francisco, it's not like he had an unbelievable season or anything like that, 
but he was like throwing harder and they made noticeable changes to his delivery. And you wouldn't think that a guy who was that established is likely to do a thing like that, but he did. And this type of thing happens all the time. Evan Phillips was just around, you know, Evan Phillips had a, a sexy looking breaking ball his whole life. But it took him until he was like almost whatever. I don't even know how old Evan Phillips is, but like he was one of the first guys when I came to Fall League for the first time as a college kid who was here, like in the Brave system. Yeah, he's 29. It took him forever to be a, a good team's late inning reliever. And so I do think, you know, in Fetty's case, he did it at a third party. Uh, facility in the U.S. He went to uh, like a you know one of these gas camp indoor facilities in Scottsdale, and like driveline is like this, and Tread Athletics is like this. Like Cole Reagan's, the Royals didn't make him better. Tread Athletics did, and so you know I do think you're seeing more of that where some of the developmental process is outsourced. I think that you're going to see more and more of that. I don't think we've reached like an equilibrium where these we have enough of these third party independent places that can do this as we continue to lose minor league affiliates. I think that that's going to be a big deal. Having scouts in those facilities or those facilities sending data to teams to show them like who isn't on a contract, but could maybe be because of how their, their data looks like at these indoor facilities that are developing guys. There are all kinds of, of avenues for it. But yeah, I think just given what we know about, you know, what one can glean from watching, Japanese baseball late at night at like what's on their broadcasts, the things that are, are have permeated their culture as it relates to pitching development with technology uh, and like quantifiable stuff. It seems obvious that there's stuff going over there that is on par with some of what's happening here. It varies team to team. One of my KBO scouting contacts has a team that is only recently beginning to invest in this and really understand and use it and make it part of their like player development infrastructure, stuff like high-speed video and pitching labs. So, you know, there are some teams who are further ahead of others in that space in Asia. But yeah, I think for sure there are other barriers when you're talking about doing that over there that have to do with like language. Some of the players who end up going over there are not, they're not the best expats. They don't go over to Korea with like an open mind necessarily, and they feel kind of isolated and, and, and alienated. There was a, a pitcher who melted down in Korea like two seasons ago, who like, you know, an American pitcher, I think it was Mike Montgomery, who just like had an absolute meltdown. Like he just wasn't handling the transition well, and all that stuff like becomes a variable too. But, but yeah, I think for some of these guys, you get to go over there, you get to cut it loose. It's its own challenge. There was, there's a pitcher or a position player who signed with the Korean team a couple of years ago who was deathly afraid of flying. And like a hurdle for him being on a big league team was like he had to fly. And mm. I mean, obviously he had to fly over to Korea and stuff, but like these countries are small enough that you don't, it's not as intense a cross country flight mm -hmm. from San Diego to New York if you're, you know, Jose Perella or whatever. So uh, there's all kinds of stuff that reasons that guys end up going over there. And I do think there's also a, hey, I'm the best one over here now. And that gives them a certain measure of confidence. So uh, it's a fascinating thing to be able to follow and either through the, the leaderboards on our site, which we just have for the KBO, uh, you can see like who's over there and who's succeeding or not. Like look at Anthony Alford and, you know, all these guys who 
you know, there's it's some remember some guys from the minors, like from just a couple of years ago, a lot of the time. Well, if Lee was something of a, a meaty appetizer, I think that the the main course in this group of international players is likely to be Yamamoto. There's reporting today that um, the Dodgers have sort of given him a full court press. This is from Fabian Ardaya that uh, his meeting with the Dodgers yesterday included star power like Mookie Betts, Freddie Freeman, and Otani. Wow. <laughs> yeah. What a, what a, like, group to be able to bring in the room, right? I know. Otani was getting wooed by the Dodgers two weeks ago, and now he's, like, out there doing recruiting for them. Yeah, doing, doing the, the wooing himself. Um, and mm-hmm. it seems like every time I see a rumored contract estimate for Yamamoto, the number has gone up uh, relative to the prior one. So what is it about him that is so exciting to teams? Uh, what do you expect from him if he... Uh, I mean, he'll be great, presumably, no matter who he signs with. But what do you expect from him next year? Yeah, you could. It was interesting at the GM meetings because there was so much Japanese media there. You could see them congregating around the organizations who were rumored to be in on these guys, right? Whether it was Otani or Yamamoto. And so it was like Cashman. It was Farhan. It was Brandon Gomes. Uh, there's just so many cameras and media people there. And some of the questions for Farhan were like, hey, short righties, what's your take? <laughs> and Yamamoto, that's the one quote unquote knock. And it may just be teams putting it out there into the into the you know media zeitgeist as a way of like creating some sort of doubt in the the discourse. But like look, Yamamoto to me is peak Granky. That's what this guy looks like. He looks like him bodily. He's just the way the uniform is just sort of draped over him and and loose and kind of flowing because he's like a smaller, skinnier guy. His delivery is very similar to Granky's. His command is every bit as good as Pete Granky's. And that's the thing here that is like exceptional. There's a lot of, you know, pitch data talk out there about how this guy's stuff is like above average to plus, but not elite. And I think some of that is true. But his command is elite. And that's like a less quantifiable thing. If you put on two of, just put on this guy's last two starts in the, you know, MPB World Series, just go find the stream of him somewhere. Like it's, it exists somewhere, I promise you. And watch how good this guy's command of mid to upper 90s, reaching back for upper 90s when he wants it, you know, kitchen sink, monster splitter. His command of everything is surgical. Like this is a rookie of the year and Cy Young threat rolled into one. I don't know what some of the ballpark contract stuff is. It would not surprise me if this guy got $350 million. He's 25. He's absolutely unbelievable. I'm all in on Yoshinobu Yamamoto. Yeah, he's he's just that good. So... Yeah, like how many pitchers in the world would would you take before him? I mean, you know, forget about like best international prospect or pitcher in MLB. How many pitchers do you think are are better than he is, or or would you kind of give give better chances to win a Cy Young? Cole Wheeler, mm-hmm. Strider. Now we can start to quibble. Like I think there's a clear gap between Yamamoto and Snell. I love Framber Valdez a lot, but I'm pretty sure I would take Yamamoto. I would take Yamamoto over Gallon. I would take him over Gossman. If you told me I'm getting like fully operational burns, it's close. 
sandy. Mm-hmm. It's close. I don't know. That's kind of it. <laughs> right. <laughs> you were just going to say something about the height and the builds, right? Like, is that overblown? Does that matter? I think he's proven that you should ignore it. I think there are actual, uh, like, logical reasons that we as a, uh, you know, the scouting apparatus should cool it with the tall guy thing. Some of it is just mechanical repeatability. Some of it is fastball approach angle. It's just likely to be shallower and more effective for missing bats in the zone when the pitcher's shorter. You can be tall and have a low release height and your fastball can still play that way. But when you're shorter, like all things equal, it's just going to be better for that purpose. And then as far as stress on the elbow is concerned, you know, and this is like from an old driveline article that's probably 10 years old at this point, but it's an interesting thought. Like the formula for torque, part of it is just like the length of the lever, you know, so theoretically the stress on your elbow is going to be directly correlated with like the length of your arms, like the distance from the fulcrum to the end of the lever is like part of the formula. So stress on your joints might be worse if you're like longer. Uh, And that's like theoretical, right? But it makes sense. So especially when a guy is this athletic and his body is just so beautifully connected from the ground and his lower body all the way through his fingertips and he's reaching back for 99 with pinpoint control, just forget it. Like, it doesn't matter. It turns out it, it, it's mattered for some guys, right? Like, Davey Garcia was just like, is this guy going to sustain this velocity? And it turns out, no, he wasn't. Luis Patino, is this guy going to be able to do it? Like, no. But Yamamoto's been doing this for a while now. Like, this guy's just been a capital D dude for long enough that he gets to be <laughs> exempt from the stupid uh, bonus pool stuff. So it's fine. Like, I would have every confidence that this guy is just going to be a top of the rotation starter for the next half decade. And he's not the only pitcher that is in this free agent class. So walk us through some of the other guys who you're excited about who are coming over from NPB and might entice some teams on the free agent pitching side. Yeah, it's a pretty deep, good group. Uh, I expect next year's, really for the next couple of years, it it probably will be, we'll have at least one really big deal guy coming over each of the next couple of years. So yeah, you do have, you have Yamamoto, you have Roki Sasaki, who uh, there is a report out there that he has requested to be posted this off season. I think it's very unlikely that that would happen. Both Yamamoto and Sasaki would be top five uh, universal prospects. Okay. Like, I think you could make an argument that you would take Yamamoto ahead of Jackson holiday. Uh, you definitely would take Roki Sasaki ahead of Paul Skeens. Uh, both those guys are dudes. Uh, and then, you know, the the other guys for this year, Shota Imanaga is 30 years old, lefty with the Yokohama Bay Stars. This is the sneaky, fastball, invisible guy. Uh, j- you know, j- Japanese athletes are just shorter on average than a lot of our baseball athletes. Uh, when you look at the annual Japanese, like, NPB draft results, it's a lot of... Lefties who have that short vertical arm stroke, 
they look like they're trying to do a Kershaw type thing uh, with their delivery and their stuff tends to play that way, except they all throw like 88 to 91. Right. And that, that is like what the overwhelming majority of their like first and second round college pitcher, high school pitcher, they're 5'11", six foot, and they sit 88 to 91 with stuff that kind of plays in, in the same way that Kershaw's does. Imanaga is one of those guys who over time... Uh, has like developed pinpoint command of his own of stuff that that plays that way. So he's only sitting like 92, but he doesn't walk anybody. He's super durable. He threw 143 innings. And, you know, this is one of those guys with like that upshot angle fastball that plays even though it's it's only 92. And, you know, whether there are some questions here too, like his curveball is really slow. So how is that going to play over here? Uh, his changeup from a pure stuff perspective is only okay. It's way more reliant on his command uh, than on pure stuff. But he's going to come over here and be a number four or five starter on a good team. Obviously, he's 30 years old. And so like the shelf life, life on, on that like might be shorter than some of these other guys we're talking about. Yariel Rodriguez uh, is a Cuban reliever who I think could be a setup man. It's your pretty standard like... Uh, 94 to 97, touch 100 in relief, uh, converted from starting to the bullpen, had like a, a huge VLO spike within the last couple of years. Be- because of the way like Cuban citizenship works, the players who get quote unquote loaned to the NPB teams from Cuba, they do have to a lot of the time defect in some way. And that can involve them like being AWOL from their NPB team during the last year of like their contract there. And that was the case uh, with Yariel who opted out of, he like defected after the WBC and didn't pitch during the 2023 uh, NPB season. Like he's just worked out for teams during the fall and looked basically the same. So uh, he's, you know, in that late inning relief market, there's a guy named Raydel Martinez uh, and a lefty named Levon Moinello who are both in this boat uh, for next year. Moinello maybe would have come over this offseason, but got hurt and wants to be a starter. So, you know, look for that next year. He pitched for Fukuoka SoftBank Hawks. Uh, Levon Moinello is a name to watch for a year from now. And Raydel Martinez also with the Dragons, uh, another Cuban righty. Uh, who, like, a year from now, that's a name you're going to want to know. Other dudes for this offseason, you've got uh, Yuki Matsui, 28-year-old lefty reliever, three pitches, plus command. He doesn't throw especially hard. It's just, like, three slightly above-average pitches that he commands the heck out of. He's platoon neutral. Is it going to be, you know... He's like the third or fourth best guy to come out of any given bullpen. So a nice middle relief contributor there, Yuki Matsui. Uh, and then you've got uh, a Taiwanese guy, Yun Yu Sang. He's only 22. He's 5'8", like 165. He's got like huge glutes and thighs and just like super powerful arm strength only type guy. He's been up to 99. He sits 93, 96. Again, it's got a flat angle because he's five foot eight. He is like unconventionally strong for a guy that size. You have to really develop the rest of what's happening here. But, you know, considering 
he's coming from Taiwan and is so young. Maybe there's room for growth as far as secondary stuff is concerned. So he's a really interesting name to watch uh, this offseason. And then, yeah, after that, it's like Taser's Choice. There's a guy named Na- Naoyuki Uasawa uh, who pitched for the Hokkaido Nippon Ham Fighters in Japan. That's Otani's old team. Uh, he's like a, a data-oriented sleeper starter. He's 30. Command's not really there for me. For him to start, but it's, you know, it's interesting. And then you have the kickback guys like Kyle Keller and Jacob Wagusback and Adam Plutko, who are like, okay, up down reliever types in a vacuum. But if they sign anywhere, you know, assume someone thinks that they can just be like a perfectly fine, you know, middle reliever. But yeah, folks should go to the international player tab over on the board over, you know, on fan graphs. And just sort the ETAs by the 2024s, and you've got you know scouting reports for all these guys. Yeah, that was what I was going to ask you about next, because you just did a redo. You updated the board, and a couple of the guys we've been talking about here are very close to the top. And of the guys that we haven't really talked about, because they're not coming over immediately, who would you put in that class? Maybe we've talked about Murakami before. You mentioned Sasaki. There's Yamashita, right? Like... These are, in some cases, players who could be coming over soon. Some could be years away. But when we're talking about the absolute best baseball players in the world who are not in MLB, who else should we be talking about? Yeah, Munataka Murakami is the big one and the most interesting one to watch over the course of the next two seasons. So uh, he's on pace to, to come over after the 2025 season. This was the MPB MVP two seasons ago as a 22-year-old. He had like 56 homers. He had a a pretty rough for him 2023. He has not really developed defensively. He's still a bad third baseman. The swing and miss stuff has ticked up. There's a lot of swing and miss against fastballs up and away from him, which is kind of a problem because like, Every right-handed pitcher just has a fastball that finishes up and away from left-handed hitters if they wanted to. And so like how that shakes out over the next two seasons is going to be pretty interesting. Last year, this guy was just at the top of this list, Murakami. Like I had him ahead of Yamamoto. I had, had him ahead of Sasaki. He would have just been a top three global prospect for me right there with Gunnar Henderson and Corbin Carroll. We're talking about a guy who was 21-22, who hit 56 bombs in the second best league in the world. He has ridiculous measurable power and was has been nothing but incredible since debuting as a teenager in the second best league in the world. Uh, but then this year was concerning where it felt like the book on him got out in a different way. And just across the board, all of his swing and miss and chase stuff got a little bit worse, not like crazy worse, but just a little bit worse across the board in a way that yeah, manifested in a lot more strikeouts and like 20 fewer homers. And then, yeah, Shunpeita Yamashita, he was the biggest riser over there during the 2023 calendar year. He had a five-tick uh, fastball bump. So now, you know, he's 21 and a half. He's built like Trevor Lawrence and, you know, had a <laughs> sub, sub two. Seriously, like he's got an NFL quarterback's build at like a strapping 6'4". He had a sub two ERA across just shy of a hundred innings, uh, you know, during his mostly like his rookie year, I guess I'd consider it. Uh, City 96 peaks at 98, 99 pretty routinely. Uh, and just has a monster upper seventies breaking ball. It's your traditional power 12 to six breaking ball. If that guy were 
you know, he's 21, right? So if he were in our draft, he just would have been the top college pitcher not named Paul Skeens picked in this past year's draft. Like he's better than Chase Dolander and all those guys. He's a top 10 pick in, in just any given baseball draft uh, and is, you know, plays for the, the Oryx Buffaloes, which is the same org that uh, Yamamoto is coming from. So that's a name to know for like way, way, way in the future. But those are, those are the two big deal young guys other than Roki Sasaki um, who are over in Japan right now. I guess just goes to show that you can't rely on the average, right? In terms of build and physicality, there are going to be outliers, even if on average they're a little bit shorter when you look at the draft results, right? Yeah, and it's fascinating. Like, they're growing over there, too. Like, the rate at which people in Korea and Japan are growing is, uh, like, on average, is outpacing the U.S., which for the longest time, obviously, like, we were just getting much bigger than the rest of the world. That kind of leads into my last question, which is just about the stylistic differences among players in these various leagues. And even, of course, comparing one Asian league to another, there are different traits and tendencies and, you know, higher power, higher strikeout, etc. But, you know, there are certain windups or stances, delivery differences, right, aesthetically speaking, across these leagues, which is great because I like baseball players just looking different in terms of how they play the game at a really high level. And that's something that you sometimes see people lament about MLB these days. Oh, it looks like everyone has sort of the same stance or the same delivery. There's a little less idiosyncrasy there. So do you think that those differences indicate that one way is better or worse? Or is it purely just like each could learn from the other or each one works in its specific environment, you know, like should players in the U S be taught to set up the way that Japanese players often are, or should, you know, would they be better if they did it the way that people do it here? Like, I don't want everyone to just be bland and the same, but if there are different approaches, then maybe one might be better than the other or maybe not. So I guess that's my question. It's tough to like, make inferences about a cultural approach to anything just from like watching uh, TV basically. <laughs> um, but yeah, like the, the style of baseball over there is more balletic. The ability to just rip fastballs past people doesn't quite exist over there. And so the way that they go about trying to do anything is is going to be slightly different. Like just the, the sheer physicality and power on both sides of the ball really is is different. I do like watching Japanese baseball. It is a lot of fun. I think the best illustration of, I guess, some of the difference in the style of play is like the league-wide swinging strike rate in NPB was 8%, I think. And it's like 12% in, in MLB. And it feels like four percentage points isn't a lot, but it's like a 50% increase from 8% up to 12%. It is just a much more contact and defense-oriented game. And I think a large part of that is because it is easier to find athletes who are exceptional at doing that over there than it is to find guys who are exceptionally strong and powerful. And so the game just looks that way. Uh, I do think that in terms of like bodily movement, especially for pitchers, that Japan has had a better idea of how to like optimize the way 
guys move their bodies uh, for longer. So I couldn't even tell you the the name of this book, and I've showed it to Meg has seen this book and like a bunch of the other Fangraphs writers because I brought a copy of it to winter meetings to show everybody. Uh, it's it's a manga, like a pitching manga from 1998 called uh, I don't know what, but it's but it's by a guy named Kazushi Tezuka, K A Z U S H I Tezuka, and some of the draw like I can't read any of this book, but some of what this guy drew in the book is like unbelievable it is exactly the way you'd want to teach like a drop and drive delivery today to create some of the traits on you know pitches that we've talked about already in this podcast it really is like ahead of its time and the, and the drawings are amazing and yeah if you were to put on an mpb game or just like go find video of yoshinobu yamamoto throwing a baseball uh, it looks like the drawings in this book and so I think that they've had a better idea of how to like get the most out of one's body on the mound, just out of necessity for much longer than we did. Like it took a tech bro startup to show through like hardcore science that like this is how we should do things before we really bought into any of this stuff on our shores. And we still have a lot of these like multi-billion dollar franchises who have guys pretending to throw while holding a towel, you know, in the bullpen, like that still goes on a lot. So I think that, yes, just some of their approach to getting the most out of their bodies over there is like heightened their awareness of some of this stuff a good 15 years before uh, it was a thing that was pervasive in United States baseball development culture. So Folks should check out that book online if you can. Don't buy, uh, don't all go buy copies of it because I'm like hoarding them. (laughs) 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 So I'm still waiting for one that might be lost in the mail. But yeah, like folks go look at, that's actually like my avatar and various, you know, my Gmail or my Twitter or whatever, uh, like comes from that book and it took me forever to actually find a copy of it. Now I have two and I'm waiting on a third. So uh, don't all everyone go buy one at once, but um, but yeah, check that out. All right, well, podcast appearance number twenty nine went great. We will uh, celebrate <laughs> number thirty with you at some point in the future. Thanks as always. Thank you guys again for for having me, and um, it's been a nice it's been a nice little stretch here. Like it was great to see the whole website at winter meetings, but yeah, it's been a, a beautiful little stretch here, like getting to see everybody again and uh, like turn 35 and like reflect on a bunch of things. And so I'm thankful that this is part of my, my baseball writing life is coming on here with you guys. All right. That will just about do it for today. By the way, my book about player development in baseball, The MVP Machine, has been translated into Japanese, Korean, and Chinese. And from what I understand, some of the ideas in there have been embraced in baseball circles. So there's definitely a lot of interest in data-driven player development. Not surprising that it's paying off for players there. Also, I will remind you to vote, if you haven't already, in the audience referendum on how to handle Shohei Otani's contract in the free agent contracts over underdraft. After 
after we recorded our intro today, the AP reported that Otani has what's sometimes called a key man clause in his contract. He has no opt-outs, but if Dodgers controlling owner Mark Walter or Pobo Andrew Friedman leave the team seemingly for any reason of their own volition or not, then Otani could opt out at the end of the season and keep whatever deferred funds he has earned to that point, which is quite unusual. The only other time I can recall hearing about this in baseball is Joe Madden's deal with the Rays. He had a similar provision also for Friedman. And when Friedman left the Rays, Madden opted out, went to the Cubs, won a World Series. Quite a flex for Friedman that prominent people around him think he's so important to the team that they might not even want to be there anymore without him. Anyway, I'm sure Otani doesn't want to trigger that clause. And it's not likely that Friedman will leave, but 10 years is a long time for a baseball executive to stay in one place. It gives them both some leverage, even if Otani didn't want to exercise that clause. Maybe he could ask for something more not to. Plus, sure gives Friedman a lot of leverage. If he has a contract negotiation coming up, better pay me or I'll leave and you'll lose Otani, though I doubt he wants to leave. And it's not like his job was in any danger, I don't imagine. Still, how would you value something like that if we're considering factors other than just the total guaranteed dollars? Total guaranteed dollars are pretty important to us and to this podcast. So if you want to send some our way, you can do that by going to patreon.com slash effectively wild. The following five listeners have already signed up and pledged some monthly or yearly amount to help keep the podcast going, help us stay ad-free, and get themselves access to some perks. Christopher Welter, Troy Carter, Michael Mountain, Anthony Sheff, and Ross Wasserman. Thanks to all of you. Patreon perks include access to the Effectively Wild Discord group for patrons only, monthly bonus episodes, prioritized email answers, shoutouts at the end of shows, potential podcast appearances, discounts on merch and ad-free Fangraphs memberships, and so much more. Check out all the offerings at patreon.com slash effectivelywild. And if you are a Patreon supporter, you can message us through the Patreon site. If not, you can contact us via email, send us your questions and comments at podcast at fangraphs.com. If you didn't sign up for Effectively Wild Secret Santa, you missed your chance. But if you did, then you should have received your assignment. I received mine. If you didn't, check your spam folder. Sometimes it ends up in there. Or let Zach Wentkos know. He's the organizer of this event. And if you agreed to send someone a gift, please do so. Don't just get your gift and leave someone else empty-handed. And when you get your gift, please post it on Twitter, tag EWPod, in the Facebook group, in the Discord group, wherever you are. You can join that Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash Effectively Wild, and you can follow Effectively Wild on Twitter, as I said, at EWPod. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and Spotify and other podcast platforms, and you can find the Effectively Wild subreddit at r slash Effectively Wild. Thanks to Shane McKeon for his editing and production assistance. We'll be back with one more episode before the end of the week. Talk to you soon. Keep you company, they'll keep you sane. A long bike ride or a slow work day. Megan Ben waxing about a playoff race. Who's bad's high? It's effectively wild. So stick around.